Welcome back to episode 8 of the Conspiracy Skeptic Podcast, a roughly 12-part overview of popular conspiracies of today and the not-too-distant past. I'm your host and conspiracy skeptic, Carl Mamer. I've recently put my car back on the road after it's sitting in my sister's backyard for over four years. Boy, gas prices sure have changed in the last half decade. In 2003, I was paying about a buck twenty-five a gallon in Seattle. Today, well, that's not quite the case, is it? Now, given that energy costs have seemingly doubled and tripled, it might be popular to blame this one on one or more conspiracies. As conspiracy skeptics, we also might be tempted to see a correlation between the high price of gas and a rise in claims about the suppression of free energy machines. Or, Horizon claims people have invented a perpetual motion machine, and the Patent Office, in league with the Freemasons, the Reverse Vampires, and the Trekkies, have worked to prevent some stalwart outsider from getting patent protection for his machine, thereby allowing the big oil companies, the Reverse Vampires, and the Trekkies to steal his invention and make it disappear, thereby preserving the fat oil profits that fund both the Luciferian War on Democracy and Star Trek fanfiction websites. We're through the looking glass, people. But let's take a step back. Check out the Wikipedia page, History of Perpetual Motion Machines. You'll see that people have attempted to defraud, hoax, and mislead others, which sometimes include themselves, about claims of perpetual motion. People with stunning regularity, without any relation to the spot price of a barrel of North Sea Light Sweet Crude, have announced to the world they've discovered the secret to everlasting, clean, too cheap to meter energy. The credulous, technically unsophisticated media tends to love these kinds of stories. Their template runs like this. An outsider, usually a guy without much academic scientific training, has found the solution to the world's energy problem tinkering in his garage. The reporter can't explain it, and since people don't get to be on TV unless they're super, super smart, well, there you go. The reporter is on TV. You're just some schlub on a couch. Why would you doubt his authority? For those who might dare doubt the word of a trained investigative reporter type, who the day before was covering a story about a scrappy dog that skateboards, they'll pull some local college physics prof into the story. This, of course, makes for good B-roll. The know-it-all ivory tower academic is left baffled and just a little less sure that the stuff he's teaching out of his dusty old textbooks is true. I, for one, have come to realize that any time a science story includes the phrase baffled scientists, or leaving scientists baffled, or scientists are scrambling to explain, you can darn well bet the news org long ago laid off their academically qualified science reporter and gave the job of science reporting to the lifestyle section. The bit is usually wrapped up with the backyard inventor invoking false modesty by claiming even he can't really explain it. Oddly, that the scientist doesn't have a ready explanation plays as a negative, and yet when the folksy inventor pulls back his ball cap and confesses his own ignorance, we're supposed to, on command, issue the same sort of good-natured chuckle we emit when our 80-year-old grandmother shuts up the Best Buy sales guy midway through his extended warranty gibberish, or, you know, a five-year-old says fuck in church. I guess these kinds of stories are meant to ease our fears that, Despite all the stories about murder and police sodomy the 6 o'clock news hits us up front with, the world really just works on very simple principles. 
If a guy with a ball cap can solve the world's energy problems in his garage, someone surely can find an easy solution to thrill killers. The public is also primed for these stories by similar stories more grounded in reality. Who doesn't know the tale about Apple being founded by two college dropouts in their garage? Two precocious youths get the finger from know-it-all bank loan officers and end up creating a company that goes the distance with IBM. There's a little quip in Forrest Gump about how he bought shares in what he thought was a fruit company called Apple and now had an embarrassment of riches in his bank. A stock analyst looked at the historical price of Apple shares from their IPO and found at the time of Forrest Gump, he would not have gotten particularly rich. With the rise of the iPod, that might not be the case today, but when the movie came out, Apple would have returned in an investor far, far less than simply investing in the Dow Index. Sure, many got rich, but those were the investors who fronted the startup money and early employees who had very low-priced stock options. Another folksy outsider story the free energy people like to point to is Maurice Ward, a Brit who invented starlight plastic. Starlight plastic is apparently some wonder polymer that can stand up to the heat of a blowtorch, a laser, even the heat of a nuclear explosion, and this is just a thin coating of it. I guess it's something of a holy grail in the realm of material sciences. Maybe one step down from room temperature superconducting. I don't know. Imagine painting the bottom of the space shuttle with this stuff, or painting it on the nose cones of nuclear missile reentry vehicles. More amazingly, your average Starbucks barista has more scientific training than Maurice Ward. Ward was a hairdresser. Back in the early 1990s, as the story goes, Ward cooked up his plastic in his workshop while mixing his own home-brewed shampoos. Ward tried to get various chemical companies interested, but naturally they wrote him off as a crank. He eventually got the local TV station to do a story. Ward coated an egg in his starlight plastic. A TV reporter held a blowtorch on the coated egg for four minutes. After this roasting, the egg was cracked open to display the egg was still raw and runny. Jane's Defense Weekly then investigated and seemed to confirm his claims. This was 1993. So why isn't this plastic coating everything from oven mitts to the International Space Station? Why isn't Ward richer than Bill Gates, or at least as rich as Steve Ballmer? Well, no one seems to know. Ward is a website, but it's pretty much just one badly designed page. Ward never patented his plastic, fearing people would steal the formula. Which is a weird claim, as we patent things so people can't steal our invention. If a guy can glorp this stuff up in his backyard, couldn't Dow figure it out now that they're aware it can be done and made using chemicals a hairdresser might have access to? People have tried to set up deals with Ward, report he demands extremely large royalty payments, and when people agree, he then ups his payment demand. Should that be met, he ups it again. And again. Some people think he was paid off by one or more governments to quietly transfer the technology to them. But you would think 15 years later, there would be some indication of the substance in military use. It's more probable he's just a nutter who thinks he's always being lowballed and keeps holding out. Hell, the guy who founded Hotmail said no to a $200 million buyout from Microsoft and he demanded a billion. Anyway, I've kind of strayed badly from the topic at hand. But hey, 
I, I do one podcast a month. So if you think I'm being long-winded, listen to half now and half the tail end of the month. Right, so what's the problem with this perpetual motion stuff? Well, first there's the law of thermodynamics. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed. All the energy we have in the universe came out of the Big Bang. We can change energy from, say, kinetic to potential or chemical or electrical, but we cannot create more. The law of thermodynamics also tells us this energy conversion will always, always result in some loss. If you upend your bike and spin its wheel, it slows because of friction. The energy you put into the spin becomes heat and sound. If you hooked up a generator to your spinning wheel, you'd be able to extract energy from the spin, but you'd not be able to extract 100% of the energy you put in with the push of your forearm. You'd lose a lot of it to friction. Now, all the energy we use in the real world comes from the fact that energy has been conveniently stored for us, and we can release the stored energy with a much smaller input of energy. Think of a little generator powered by flowing water. Long ago, someone filled up a huge tank of water for you. You can tap that energy by expending a rather small amount of energy. Namely, you expend the energy to open a valve and let the water flow. The water flows out and it turns your little generator. But eventually the water runs out. If you wish to use your system to generate more electricity, you now need to expend energy to refill the tank. Guess what? you're going to expend more energy filling that tank than you're going to get out of it. Alright, but what if you had the brilliant idea of using the generator to repump the water back into the tank? Laying aside the fact you're going to lose some of the water to evaporation, uh, the generator is also creating heat and noise as it spins. You'll lose energy to the heat and noise created by the generator. You really can't win. So. Oil is much the same way as our pre-filled water tank. Millions of years ago, the sun and geological forces were kind enough to store up loads and loads of energy in the form of oil. The small input of energy breaks the chemical bonds in oil, and we get heat. We're hooked on oil and gas because it's easy to break the chemical bonds and release a lot of stored energy, just as it's easy to flip a valve and release the stored energy in a water tank. At the end of the day, all energy we use requires us to burn up something that previously stored energy. When I say burn up, I don't mean literally, but use up. Perpetual motion, on the face of it, makes the claim that we only need to get the machine started with an initial input of energy, and then after that, the machine will run forever without requiring fuel, reactor rods, whatever. Any additional energy inputs, it gets from the energy it's making but it always creates more than it needs to feed back into the system. Lots of perpetual motion inventors are not necessarily fraudsters. Lots get confused about magnets. As all school kids know, when you bring similar poles together, the magnets repel. So inventors make spinning wheels with magnets aligned in such a way that the poles on the wheel and the poles on the housing meet and repel and keep the wheel going and these wheels will spin for some time. Long enough, the inventor thinks, free energy. But remember, all energy comes from converting one form of energy to another, less useful form of energy. Burning gas becomes heat. The heat not used to move the car forward, kinetic energy, 
heats up the air around us. Well, good luck trying to get warm air to power anything. So, magnets. Like the magnets you use to stick your nephew's drawing of a space cow on your fridge door actually do lose their magnetic field. The wheel will not spin forever. You will, in a sense, burn up the magnetic field. If you want the wheel to keep spinning, you need to replace the magnets. Well, that's a great way to power things if you have ready access to a natural magnet mine. Who does? You know anyone? What fools a lot of perpetual motion inventors is they think they've stumbled onto something. And if they could just iron out a couple kinks, like thermodynamics or magnets losing their magnetic field, they'll have a generator people can put in their homes and stick it to the oil companies. But of course, they're always short of money and they need some investors. After burning through investor money, they've found a couple other kinks and they need a bit more money. Before I label these people stupid or crooks, I have to remind myself of my own youth. Armed with my trusty Commodore 64 and a racetrack form, I thought I stumbled on a surefire method of picking winners in harness racing. Harness racing is kind of one step up from the dog track, but whatever. I started down the path of trying to use a computer to beat the odds makers. Because one day at the track, I thought I noticed a correlation between a horse's time at the third post and its chance of winning. Armed with the knowledge of how the day's races turned out and the horse's previous times, I wrote a program to pick the winners based on past performance. The winners my program picked, by no coincidence, matched the known winners. I wasn't that stupid. So, I tested it with the next day's results. My hypothesis was, if my formula were correct, I'd make more money than lose money after nine races. Guess what? It worked. So, I tested it with the results the third day. Oh, it didn't work that time. I went over the data and found some stat my program wasn't taking account of. So, I threw that into the calc and again made the program pick the known winners for that day. I tested this new formula and got decent results the fourth day. So I tested the fifth day, and this time I would have lost my shirt. So I poured over the data again and found another stat I thought was relevant, and again made the program pick the known winners. It's obvious what I was doing, right? If my formula predicted the next day's winners, it was actually just luck. If it failed, I rejigged the program to conform to the known outcome. What I never did was go back and test my new formula on the old races. That would have, at the very least, saved me the cost of buying the next day's track form. Eventually, I realized what I was doing and accepted the hard, cruel reality that I would not be able to fund my university education out of the easy winnings found at the harness racing track. I would have to fund my university education the hard way. That is, apply for government loans I could default on and then move to Australia until my credit rating was expunged. I can well imagine someone who thinks he's discovered perpetual motion falls prey to a similar psychology. He keeps trying to patch up what he thinks is some new minor engineering problem without realizing he's borrowing from the other side of the equation. But since he already balanced that side of the equation in a previous iteration, he doesn't check to see if it's still balanced in the new iteration. Now, many people subscribe to conspiracy theories because it sort of collects up a bunch of random nebulous threats and presents one solid target. 
one big fire to put out is psychologically more appealing than a hundred little fires. There's a great experiment in psychology where people are told about two diseases. Each kills 500 people a year. You have control of a budget. You can spend it on eliminating disease A or disease B, or you can spend it on reducing the death toll of both A and B by 50%. The end result is no matter what you choose, 500 die a year instead of 1,000. The large majority of people prefer to eliminate one disease in total instead of merely reducing the death toll of both by half. Ultimately, people just like having less crap to worry about. So, the upshot of people latching on to conspiracy theories is it gives them a sense like, if we just got together and had a show in Grandma's barn, we could bring the conspiracy to its knees. But we're just waiting for someone to lead us. But that person will emerge real soon now. Trust me. An oft-repeated urban legend slash conspiracy story you hear a lot about is some undated, unreferenced claim about a guy who invented a car engine that got 200 miles to the gallon, and he was variously bought out by the big oil and his machine was trashed, or the inventor and his family were threatened into silence. The problem with this story is a bit like the problems with the cure for cancer conspiracy theory. First, like the cure for cancer conspiracy, this story has been kicking around since, well, at least the 70s. That's when I first heard it. Surely, in all that time, others would have stumbled on the engine design. One of the big problems in writing the history of a modern invention is you really have to split hairs deciding who the actual inventor is. Many people roughly invent the same thing, be it a car, airplane, phone, TV, or radio. It frequently comes down to who added the specific dongle that truly made it into a commercially viable product. It seems to me there are many nations full of smart people, nations that are not in thrall of big oil. Wouldn't Korea or Japan or France or Germany seize upon such an engine? Why wouldn't the car companies themselves be friendly to such an engine? Don't car companies fight tooth and nail government regulations that require addition of safety devices that raise the price of a car? Seems to me anything that would lower the cost of owning a car would be a sellable feature. And while some people like the status of a 8-cylinder SUX 6000 that burns up road and gas in equal proportion, there are other industries that don't factor in such status. The trucking industry sure would like to reduce fuel costs, regardless of the price of fuel. Makers of farming equipment, makers of aircraft, makers of backup generators, they would all be interested. The American Army would like to stop having to move so much fuel up to the front lines to gas up tanks. You would think over the last 30 years, someone else would stumble upon the secret of a 200 mile per gallon engine. And why do we treat car companies like a monolith, just as the cure for cancer people treat pharma companies like a monolith? Setting aside for a moment a Japanese or Korean car company could introduce a 200 mile per gallon car and instantly capture market share, why wouldn't, I don't know, number three automaker Chrysler do it domestically? I mean, each company is always trying to introduce a more convenient cup holder than the next guy. Why not introduce the ultimate convenience, not having to fill up every week? 
Wouldn't it be great if you could fill your tank once a month? GM spent hundreds of millions of dollars buying Daewoo so they could add a line of small, fuel-efficient cars to their product offering. GM bought Daewoo just to get cars with marginally better fuel economy, say an extra 10 or 15 miles per gallon, over what they were making domestically. If GM was going to go to all that trouble, why not do something as simple as develop or buy the 200 mile per gallon engine technology? It's 30 year old technology. Must be pretty simple to make these days, right? And how did big oil even get wind of it? Did the maker of the 200 mile per gallon engine first approach standard oil? Wouldn't he have first approached automakers? Anyway, it's beyond me why car companies wouldn't be interested in an engine design that would get 200 miles per gallon. Car companies don't appear to be owned by oil interests. If car companies were in the pocket of oil interests, why then do they design cars to run on the cheapest fuel at the pumps, namely regular unleaded? Why not introduce more cars that run on premium unleaded? They won't because people simply wouldn't buy them. Certainly, a lot of uninformed idiots fill up on premium gas. Now here's what I think is a real conspiracy, a conspiracy of silence, that no one is really going out of their way to tell you most cars not only don't need high-octane premium gas, but they get no performance boost from such gasoline in the first place. Some people happily pump vastly more expensive premium into their four-cylinder Ford thinking it will give the car more zip or better acceleration. The oil companies have only been too happy to reinforce this idea in their advertising. Well, just like cigarette makers reinforce the image that if you smoke, you can also repel down cliffs. But at the end of the day, there are plenty of websites out there that will tell you the straight story. They're not being sued or bought up by the oil companies. Even your car's handbook says someplace that your car is designed to run perfectly well on regular unleaded. Of course, no one actually ever reads the car's handbook. And given today's gas prices and flat automotive sales, wouldn't you mothball your 30 mile per gallon car and buy a 200 mile per gallon car? I mean, the record companies try to change formats on us once a decade, hoping we rebuy our record collections. First LPs, then 8-tracks, then tapes, then CDs, now DVDs and MP3s. And consider the diesel engine. The major automakers make cars with diesel engines. These engines don't burn gas, but oil. Many different kinds of oils, like peanut oil or vegetable oil. These engines have always been opportunities to break any monopoly the oil companies have. Actually, some people think the inventor of the diesel engine, uh, Rudolf Diesel, was bumped off by the oil interests because of that. Diesel himself preferred to call his engine an oil engine and believed his engine should properly be powered by oil derived from third world agriculture. Diesel also died under what some think were mysterious circumstances. On a boat crossing the English Channel, he fell overboard and drowned. No one saw him fall into the water. Most people assume it was suicide. Diesel was depressed and bankrupt. The conspiracy mongers think he was bumped off by oil interests. And here we might have the origins of stories about oil companies threatening the inventor of a 200 mile per gallon engine. Another talking point the free energy conspiracy mongers like to bring up is 
how cold fusion has been suppressed. I'm sure most of my gentle listeners are familiar with this bit of science by press conference that took place in the late 80s. Two chemists named Pons and Fleischmann thought they were seeing fusion take place in their desktop test tubes. While some people could repeat their experiments, many others failed. Many physicists were quite skeptical, as fusion should have produced neutrons. You can't have fusion truly taking place without these neutron byproducts. In answer to their critics, cold fusion proponents set up a neutron detector and claimed they were indeed seeing them. Now, here's a small problem free energy claims all share. The inventors might be measuring something other than what they think they're measuring. When you're dealing with small tabletop apparatus, the effects you're trying to measure may be very, very, very small, just at the edge of detectability. So what one is trying to measure might be equally explained by error or a natural source. In the example of cold fusion producing neutrons, one has to remember the sun is pelting us with these little buggers all the time. If the level of neutrons you're trying to detect is not much different from that which you're getting from the sun, you know, the, the background, then your experiment decides nothing. And a small side note, one of the footnote characters in the Pons and Fleischmann cold fusion debacle was a guy named Stephen E. Jones of Brigham Young University. Jones peer-reviewed a grant application by Pons and Fleischmann. Those who follow the 9-11 debate will recognize Jones as one of the founders of the Scholars for Truth. Jones himself in the 80s was researching cold fusion, although not the cold fusion of Pons and Fleischmann. Jones was researching a form of cool fusion called muon catalyzed fusion, which has, I believe, proven out to be a form of non-hot fusion. However, from the get-go, pretty much everyone agreed muon-catalyzed fusion was not a practical way to generate energy, as it required vast amounts of energy inputs. Although Jones seems to have gone off the deep end at the end of his career with the 9-11 stuff and claims he's detected bomb material in, in World Trade Center dust, in the cold fusion debacle, Jones always seemed to be the moral center of the story. Dr. Novella from the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast noted this phenomenon of respectable scientists jumping into psychic research and the like near the end of their careers. He explained the psychology like this. You got a respectable scientist who never quite achieves the great breakthroughs, but has proven himself to be otherwise competent, suddenly sees the totality of his career as being solidly dead average. He wants to leave a big mark in the world of science in the twilight of his career, so he decides Wu is the way to go. Anyway, the conspiracy mongers explain away things like a lack of reliable repeatability and decades now of zero interest in cold fusion as a result of, one, oil company suppression, of course. Uh, two, researchers in the hot fusion industry don't want to lose their massive grants. Three, Pons and Fleischmann were chemists and were trying to edge out the physics community. Four, those reverse vampires and Trekkies. To point two, researchers are afraid of losing grants. I always think this is a funny claim, and one behind many other conspiracies. 
you know, NASA scientists would be out of jobs if they revealed evidence of space aliens. If one were to discover an easy way of generating fusion energy, do you think that would be the end of scientific research? No. The hot fusion guys would all get grants to study cold fusion. Cheap energy means wealth. Wealth means loads of money for science. Just because you study fusion doesn't mean you can't do other kinds of science. Ever know an unemployed PhD with lots of experience in nuclear physics? To point three, there is indeed a lot of academic rivalry, but most scientists realize modern science encompasses many disciplines, and you need to deal with people outside your field. No one has all the pieces of the puzzle. There was a great example of this by the guys who discovered the buckyball form of carbon. They found what they thought was an amazing structure new to science. It was a carbon sphere made up of pentagons and hexagons. The discoverers wanted to check to make sure they had something novel, so they called a prof in the math department and began describing it. The math prof sort of let them talk and then began his explanation. Ah, yes. This is a well-known structure in math. I could give you a lot of complicated math to define it, but let me make it simple for you. You've discovered the soccer ball. To point four, the reverse vampires and Trekkies are confounding cold fusion. Well, let me say the Trekkies play hardball. You don't want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with these bastards. And they have bought my silence. And to point one, oil company suppression. Well, again, I, I gotta note Japan is not overly blessed with oil reserves. And their manufacturing sector is kind of facing stiff competition from China. If Japan could power its industry with cheap electricity, courtesy of cold fusion, wouldn't it? If reports are to be believed, Japanese academics and, in, and industry have been researching cold fusion since the late 80s. You're telling me a couple chemistry profs can do it on a tabletop in their lab, but Hitachi and Toyota can't get results, and if they get results, can't exploit it for commercial gain? There are many industries, even in North America, that are highly dependent upon vast amounts of electricity. The aluminum industry comes to mind. Does big oil control the aluminum industry? Now, some people like to point to GM's supposed destruction of the public transit industry in LA as an example of the long reach of the auto industry and their ability to destroy viable competition. The story goes like this. In the 1920s and 1930s, LA had one of the best public transit systems in the world. Streetcar lines ran everywhere. And then GM came in, bought up the streetcar company, and summarily closed it down, forcing people to buy cars, preferably GM cars. Now, I notice Microsoft's Expedia and other sites like Travelocity are destroying the travel agent industry. Why do you suppose this is? It's certainly not a conspiracy. Booking your travel online versus going to a travel agent is seen as more convenient. New inventions that offer greater convenience tend to destroy older industries that offer less convenience. A car is very convenient. While in retrospect we see the problems created by cars, in the early part of the 20th century, no one had a firm grasp about the growth in the auto. And people seem to believe if you needed more roads, you just built more roads. It was cheap.
you didn't have to do environmental studies. There wasn't a big problem with NIMBY. There was lots of land surrounding those little cities. But at the end of the day, even in cities with outstanding public transit systems, people still drive and crowd the roads. In Seoul, Korea, it has a cheap, highly useful subway system. Fare is like 90 cents, a buck. You can go across a city of 10 million for like a buck. The government never stops adding lines. Also, a major cornerstone of the Korean economy is car manufacturing. Korean roads are clogged with cars despite the massive subway system available to citizens. You just can't get around the convenience factor of a car. Most transit companies these days need massive government subsidies. Why are we to think a privately owned public transit company would manage to stay in business at any time when competing with cars? Why blame GM for the demise? Okay, GM bought an interest in public transit companies, but its interest was not a controlling interest, and it was fully in keeping with GM's core business. See, GM made buses. Wouldn't GM see the future of public transit as moving from streetcars to buses? Buses can drive around construction. If you want to introduce a new route, you don't have to lay rail and electric lines. And finally, transit companies were already transitioning to buses. If you were a transit company, wouldn't you buy the buses made by one of your major stockholders? Now what's amazing is people spin massive, elaborate conspiracy theories instead of invoking Occam's razor and the rather simple explanation that free energy devices simply don't work. Last year, we were treated to a rather amusing failure of the much-ballyhooed Storn's Orbo free energy machine. Storn, this Irish company, apparently started life as a dot-com in 2000, which puts it a little late in the dot-com game. After the dot-com bust, Storn apparently moved into developing kinetic energy machines. You know, like self-winding watches. That, that sort of thing. But bigger. Somewhere along the line, Storm decided it had discovered the secret to perpetual motion with its Orbo device. It ran an expensive ad in The Economist, claiming it had developed a perpetual motion machine, and several unnamed scientists had already verified their claims. Storm invited more scientists to submit their names for a special panel that would verify once and for all that Orbo was indeed a perpetual motion machine. Storn claimed to have selected the panel, and the testing would be completed by the end of 2007. I will remind my gentle listeners we're well into 2008. On July 4, 2007, Storn was to set up a live display of a working model of the Orbo, but the demo was cancelled. It claimed the light shining on it heated it up too much. I will remind you, Storm boldly proclaimed the Orbo could be used to power a passenger jet. It's a wonder how one can power a jet in the harsh upper atmosphere when simple track lighting will knock out your generator. Anyway, Storm has been terribly silent since then. Their website has a press release from a few months ago about a speech given at or near their office, but nothing in the speech mentioned Orbo, or perpetual motion. From most reports, the principals at this company sincerely believe they created a free energy machine. Despite the epic failure of their demonstration, Storm commented uh, on February 18, 2008, quote, Things are going very well. However, we will not be pre-announcing anything. When we launch, everyone will know at the same time, end quote. 
Just as the baffled scientist is a necessary part of any good free energy story, promises about concrete results or a production model for sale soon is another important part of the free energy story template. Storn has not given up the ghost, just hang on. Something is coming in the near future. It's curious, in 200 years of claims of perpetual motion, no one has ever sold a single device. I mean, they're happy to sell shares in their company, always with the promise that if they just had an extra $10,000, dot, dot, dot. Sure, you might argue Big Oil is trying to destroy their business, but Big Oil sure never seems to stop anyone from investing in free energy machines. And while you might argue Big Oil can exert influence to keep one of these machines off the shelves of Ace Hardware, you never, ever, ever hear about one of these free energy devices finding their way into the hands of an independent investor. Wouldn't you at least be beta testing them with your backers? This something is coming real soon now claim always makes me laugh, as it's the same line that crops up every couple months in the UFO world. The UFO crowd is always abuzz about some rumor that something major is coming down the pipe. The government is going to make an important revelation. Someone high up is going to blow the lid off suppression. The aliens will make a public landing. I've seen this claim crop up regularly in the hoary old days of Usenet, and I saw it crop up again when that face on Mars guy claimed he was about to conduct a major press conference that would blow the lid on hidden evidence of Cylons on the moon. It just never stops. Anyway, a wonderful example of this in the perpetual motion world is Troy Reed. Troy has reinvented your basic spinning magnetic motor, which I noted earlier, eventually depletes the magnets of a usable magnetic field. Magnets run down. Sure, you make new magnets, but it actually takes about 10 times as much energy to make a magnet as you'll get out of it. No free lunch. Reed, in 1994, announced he had invented a free energy machine using magnets. He snookered his cousin, who was also TV actor Dennis Weaver, into promoting his company. Weaver was famous for his role as a horse-riding Texas sheriff on loan to the NYPD. Weaver took his image as an earthy naturalist trying to outwit the perils of urban sprawl with some backwoods folksy goodness. Weaver was very committed to environmental causes. But, as we've seen, TV people aren't particularly good at judging scientific claims. Reed took a lot in investor money and performed a lot of flashy demonstrations. In one gimmick, he drove a car across America, supposedly powered by his perpetual motion magnets. Of course, no one skeptical was allowed to examine the car. A photo of the car shows it curiously heavy in the back. One critic noted it was probably because the back was weighed down by batteries. This flashy demonstration came with a claim that a production model would be available in the following year. I remind you that demo took place in 1995. Reed's eventual fallback position was that his wife divorced him and, well, until all the legal stuff with his ex-wife was sorted out, his engine would have to wait. Again, there's always something, isn't there? Even when the vast big oil conspiracy isn't trying to destroy their invention, their Promethean-like plans are always confounded by the most prosaic of things be it studio lights or the red tape of a complicated divorce. 
Despite claims by Reed through the 1990s that he had achieved perpetual motion, he eventually admitted he had not. But, you know, hold tight. Once some paperwork is pushed through, or a bit more capital is raised, or some minor minor glitch is smoothed out, we'll be basking in the warm glow of free perpetual energy. Reed's car demo is also reminiscent of the resurgence of water cars. Who doesn't, when pumping gas, wish you could power your car on simple water? The recent yammer about a hydrogen economy has given these water cars new street cred. Anyway, it works like this. The crafty inventor fills up a car full of water, and sure enough, the engine roars to life. Much sciencey sounding gobbledygook reveals, in essence, the car uses the battery to perform electrolysis on the water, creating hydrogen and oxygen. We've all done this experiment in high school chemistry class. You fill up a test tube full of your freed hydrogen, and boom, you make a nice little bang. So what keeps the battery charged? Well, hey, what keeps the battery charged in your car? Right, a running car charges the battery. Makes sense to a local newspaper reporter. That's a wrap. But wait, it takes a lot of energy to free hydrogen atoms from their bonds with the oxygen atom. The pop you get burning the hydrogen does not provide enough energy to power a car and keep the battery fully charged. You're borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. What you're doing is taking energy out of the battery and then returning a percentage of that energy back to the battery. The system might keep the car going longer than a TV reporter would expect, but it's no solution. Now, just as quantum mechanics has charged to the rescue of psychics, giving them some sciencey sounding gobbledygook to wave their hands at when you try to delve into the actual physical impossibility of it all, dark energy has charged to the rescue of free energy people. See, there's all this energy out there in the vacuum of space, and it's being created spontaneously, and it's powering the universe apart. My free energy device is tapping into that. Well, um, no. In the vast vacuum of space, quantum mechanics dictates that particles would be popping into existence, but, but then immediately destroying themselves. This is theoretically what's behind dark energy, but this effect is only measurable across vast distances of space. If one subatomic particle is being popped into and out of existence per cubic light year, you're going to need a pretty big vacuum tank to power a car. Now, no talk about free energy devices would be complete without a small foray into anti-gravity. The problem I see with anti-gravity is that the Earth is moving us along with it at the speed of a thousand miles per hour. Gravity rather kindly keeps us tethered to the Earth. Now, if you suddenly nullified gravity, the Earth would continue moving at a thousand miles per hour, but you wouldn't. You would continue moving forward, but now the air that you simply breathed and enjoyed would start to exert friction, drag. You would start to slow down, and air around you would seem to start rushing past you at an increasingly rapid rate. I don't much enjoy battling a 10 mile per hour headwind on my bike. Imagine winds hitting you straight in the face at a thousand miles per hour. So on the face of it, anyone who claims to have nullified gravity sure needs to also make the claim they've somehow nullified momentum. Probably one of the most hilarious claims of anti-gravity on the net is something called the Hutchinson effect, named after Vancouver inventor John Hutchinson. 
Hutchinson claims he's discovered a way of using electricity or something to nullify gravity. Some of his video looks impressive, but you might have caught an episode of Mythbusters where they tested an anti-gravity device. They juiced up a triangle-shaped model, and right as rain, the sucker floated. But they quickly determined they weren't seeing anti-gravity when they tested it in a vacuum chamber. No floating. What was happening was the electricity running into the tinfoil model was ionizing the air around it, and this was exerting a subtle downward force in the air. Hence, lift. No air, no lift. No anti-gravity. Hutchinson claims, however, his effect works on non-metallic objects. And wouldn't you believe he has video of miraculous levitations? I'll link to some of it in the show notes at uh, www.yrad.com forward slash cs. The video is of a kind of workbench with a bunch of clearly non-metallic objects, like a two-liter plastic bottle and a dish of ice cream. After a few seconds, these objects leap off the workbench, flying straight up into the air. Incredible. Well, incredible he thinks he can fool anyone. Anyone with two critical brain cells to rub together will notice a couple funny things. One, it's a very tight shot with a neutral background. Two, the ice cream flies up in a manner rather reminiscent of ice cream glooping down to the floor. Did I say a couple funny things? Among the funny things, funny thing three, we only see things going straight down. I mean, straight up. Nothing hovers or even comes back down. Yeah, he's ripped off a pen and Teller gag. The workbench is upside down and he's turned the camera upside down. Apply a bit of rubber cement to the objects and they'll stick for a bit and then drop. Alternatively, put a bit of metal in the base of the object and an electromagnet hidden underneath. Turn off the magnet and the objects will appear to suddenly leap up. The ice cream will stick in the bowl for a bit and then gloop out as it gets softer. While no one should be surprised, I still am that credulous free energy bugs actually believe this is a true demonstration. Hutchinson offers vague claims about interest by the military. See, this is always an amusing claim, as it then allows the inventor an easy out. The military discovered it worked, and they threatened the inventor, or national security has locked down the lab. A NASA investigator named Mark Mills, who ran an advanced propulsion department at NASA, investigated the so-called Hutchinson effect, and found not only could no one independently repeat the Hutchinson effect, big surprise, but Hutchinson himself couldn't repeat the effect on demand. And Bigfoot always seems to appear when your camera runs out of batteries. Odd that. Anyway, no big surprise, Hutchinson claims his lab was indeed destroyed by a shadowy arm of the military. By way of proof, Hutchinson claims he has a photograph of a letter by Hans Adam II, Prince of Liechtenstein. No one is sure exactly what connection the letter has to the alleged destruction of his lab, but then again, a guy who honestly expects us to believe a badly executed pen and teller trick is an example of a levitation, well, he'll ask us to believe anything. So, kids, I think the takeaway message is if you want to get rich, slap some magnets around your bike wheel and rake in the investor money. And what would falsify my belief that you can build a practical free energy device? Well, 
drive James Randi from Florida to North Bay, Ontario in a car powered by the device. Take it to MIT and let them test it. I'm sure someone can find a couple profs at MIT who will happily sign NDAs in return for the rights to publish the paper that will win them and the inventor a Nobel Prize. Yep, that's episode 8. Until episode 9, bye bye Thanks for listening.